listeners. Thanks for clicking on that play button for today's episode of the Climbing Business Journal podcast. I'm John Bergman, senior editor at CBJ, and I'll be hosting this one. You know the buzzwords. We aim for these podcasts to inform, connect, and inspire people who work in the climbing gym industry in the business of indoor climbing. And an important component of that business is gear. Every climbing gym out there probably sells at least some commodity, something, whether it's just bottled water and chalk, maybe it's larger stuff like crash pads. Retail is part of most gyms' day-to-day operations, right? It's also a really visual part because often retail has its own space inside a gym, or if it doesn't have its own space, at least the gear is being sold and, and displayed and organized in a singular space behind the front desk. So today's conversation is all about gym retail. What sales strategies work well, what don't work so well, what sells, what doesn't sell. And the expert I'm bringing in is Brad Wernz. Brad is president of Boulders Inc. There are two Boulders gyms in Madison, Wisconsin, both of which have retail components. And as you'll hear, Brad also just has a lot of experience dealing with gear and equipment from a sales standpoint in the whole climbing industry. Quick quiz question here. What is the number one selling retail item at the Boulders gyms? You'll have to listen to the full conversation with Brad here to get that answer. So let's get into it. Let's talk about gear, retail, at climbing gyms. Here we go. My conversation with Brad Wernz. CBJ and this podcast wouldn't be possible without our sponsors. Essential Climbing is a new name for a group of brands that have served climbers, gyms, and home walls for decades. They distribute premium quality polyurethane holds manufactured at Aragon, import fiberglass macros and wood volumes, have a line of patented adjustable walls, and even design and install custom climbing walls and padded floors. Their brands include Kumiki, Everactive, Expression, Squadra, Lapis, and Axis. Learn more at EssentialClimbing.com. Stratty Climbing installs and refurbishes incredible landing surfaces for climbing gyms, rec centers, schools, and home walls. And since all floors wear down over time, Stratty often works with facilities to resurface old landing areas, extending the life to save money and avoid the landfill. Family owned and operated, the team at Stratty have been installing padded floors for over a decade. Learn more at strattyclimbing.com. Brad, I I really appreciate you taking some time out of your day to come on to the podcast today and talk all things retail. I I don't know what time of day people will be listening to this show, but for you and I, it's early in the morning and I've got my coffee here and the morning sunlight's kind of coming down on on the makeshift studio here. And and I think we're going to get into some good stuff. So thank you so much for being here. No worries. I've got my tea and it's sunny here in Madison too. And yeah, it's early morning. It's cold. So wherever you are, wherever you're listening, you know, if it's good weather, get out and enjoy it. So I have this perception about retail that it is sometimes something that gets overlooked, 
or maybe a little glossed over by gyms, especially in the early stages of the gym's development. And I get it. I'm not here to say that the retail space is more important in those developmental stages than finding, say, the right walls, finding the proper padded flooring, finding good staff, all of that stuff. All I'm saying is that it seems like when some gyms are in development, retail is kind of seen as this thing that, okay, we'll start with this. We'll just kind of like see what works. We'll evolve over time. There's probably going to be some trial and error, but hopefully we will find something that that is working. And I guess my hope with this conversation today is maybe we can save some of those gyms or current gyms a little bit of the trouble of all that trial and error. Maybe we can get into some of the methodology of what has worked for you and, and what seems to work in retail and 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 all of that and, and avoid some of those pitfalls that everybody has to go through. Absolutely. Love to help with that in any way I can. Well, maybe the first place to start is we can give people some footing. If you could just give us uh, an overview of Boulder's current retail areas, how stuff is arranged, uh, so, uh, an audio walking tour, I suppose, of your different retail areas. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, maybe maybe I can say at first, it was interesting what you just said was, uh, you know, how gyms maybe underdo it or don't think of it. And I, I think you're right in pointing that out. And so I just want to say that as background is that, you know, gyms are value proposition is people walk in the door and they pay us money to, you know, breathe air and enjoy the space. You know, really, we have no inventory costs with our with our main um, product that we sell, day passes and memberships. They, you know, just people come in and take advantage of the space. So the margin's quite high in our normal transactions, and that's our true value proposition. But hand in hand with that, there are a number of different business opportunities, including retail. You know, some people get into outside climbing or outside guiding. Other elements of fitness or yoga are also separate business models that aren't always addressed um, in an overall business plan for a gym. And in our case, we chose deliberately not to have retail in our space. Now, this was 1996. We were one of the first dozen or so commercial climbing gyms in the industry. I was a rep for Petzl and 510 and, you know, eventually Mountain Hardware and Vasque Footwear and a number of other major brands. And um, I had a conflict of interest and there were eight retail stores in Madison that sold outdoor goods. And so I'm like, you know, I'm going to let them sell the climbing stuff and the outdoor stuff and we're just going to be a climbing gym. And so we operated that way for, oh my, maybe over a decade um, with no retail beyond Cliff Bars and sodas and orange juices and energy drinks and things like that. And at the bare minimum, you need that. That's a customer um, facing appreciation and a vending machine, whether you rent one and have somebody service it or you do your own, which is actually can be highly profitable. Um, that's probably the, the the most lucrative part of our floor right now is our vending machine because we buy things at Costco for 20 cents and tell them for, sell them for $1.50 and everybody wins. So, um, you know, it's it, having your own vending machine is, is a great investment, even if you don't have retail. So, that's that's an aside. But, um, you know, we when we came in, I, I was kind of dragged kicking and screaming into it um, and we hadn't scoped space for it. So our retail shops and both of our gyms are literally just two four by eight uh, slat wall sections to the wall. Um, it's help yourself. Um, our philosophy is uh, things that touch the body that you can use in the gym is primarily what we sell. There's a couple of categories that we uh, we 
um, have that aren't in that way. But basically, we're talking about um, you know chalk bags, chalk, uh, carabiners, tape, um, I, and then our own branded swag, which is uh, another conversation that we definitely need to talk about. But we don't sell climbing shoes. Um, we do sell belay devices and harnesses at our rope gym. We have a rope gym and a bouldering gym. Um, but basically, they're things that you can use immediately in a gym. So what we don't sell, quick draws, ropes, climbing shoes, um, those are big categories that many gyms do well with. Um, we've decided not to do those because we don't have inventory space for those. And that's not what our customer comes to us for. And we end up making gear museums out of our ropes collection, or we end up liquidating our footwear inventory. Um because we don't turn it quickly enough and new models come out and things like that. So, you know, basically just the high turn, grab it and go, grab it and use in the gym stuff is primarily what we sell in the gyms. And it does very well um, on a dollar per square foot basis. We're, we're quite high for a retail space because we keep those items that turn that are high margin, that are easy to replenish and that are low tickets pretty much and just easy buys. Can you talk a little bit more about the decision not to sell shoes? That's really interesting to me because I, I've i seen a lot of retail areas and it seems like a lot of them do sell shoes. And I would think uh, a gym would be a place where you go and you see other people wearing a shoe and, and you say, oh, how do you like that? And they say, oh, I love it. It, it would be almost like an, an easy dovetail into, oh, yeah, and they sell them right over there. You can go buy some, right? Um, so can you explain a little bit about that decision not to sell shoes? I mean, I think it's unique to us. I, I know that gyms do very well with shoes. Some of my best 510 accounts were were climbing gyms, for instance. But for most gyms, depending on the size of the gym, I mean, you look at your overall traffic and what people come there for. You know, my advice as a rep was like, look, you just need four models, maybe six. You need you need a beginner and an advanced, not even an expert shoe for for unisex. And then you need the same for women. So that's four models. And then you can take the six by adding kind of an elite shoe um, for men and women. And then there you are. And you should have two brands, probably, if you do shoes. So we're talking 510 and La Sportiva or, you know, 510 and Black Diamond or Black Diamond and, you know, you, you, Scarpa, you know, you shuffle your mix, but you, know, you need two brands because you need two different fits and then you need the models and you need a good selection to sell footwear, you know, and you don't just need it because of brand favorites like, oh, I only climb in 510 or oh, I only climb in La Sportiva. You need it because they fit differently and that, you know, people have different affinities based on how that feels. So they need to be able to compare a 510 with a La Sportiva or a Black Diamond with a Scarpa shoe um, in order to get turns. Because otherwise, you're always selling against the invisible thing. You know, like you put on the new pair of hot climbing shoes, you put on like, oh, that feels pretty good. But do you have, you know, and they always ask for the other one. You're like, no, I'm sorry, we don't have that. Like, well, I really want to try that on. I'm going to go find that. And they're going to go try that on. And chances are they're going to buy the second shoe that they try on. They're already at REI and they've already gone looking for that shoe and they want to try it on. Like, you know, instead of going back to the gym, I'm just going to buy this one here. And, you know, that's great from my perspective because I have a member who has invested in a pair of shoes, which makes them a more committed member. And, you know, we don't get those sales often because we're always competing with the invisible other, you know, that idea in the head that they need to look at this other thing. So when you take your four to six SKUs of shoes from two brands, um, you know, and you do a size run of those, you very quickly get into five figures of inventory. 
And so with five figures of inventory, that's inventory that generally does not turn 100% a year. As a matter of fact, you know, for, for climbing shoes in general, if you get one turn out of your entire inventory, that's pretty magic because that means you sold the size five and the size 13 and you had everything you wanted and you fit everybody perfectly and they walked out the door and yeah, and then you're going to reorder situation. That's the other issue with climbing shoes is most climbing shoes companies don't keep back stock for reorder. So you have to preseason. So you're committed. So it ends up being this $10,000 plus commitment preseason that you pray you get out of before you have to liquidate. And you're always out the size or always out the other model to compare to. And so you're just not well positioned to make the sale as often as you'd like to think. I mean, your comment is, oh, they're just over there. Try them on. That works for the beginner, which is why a lot of gyms focus on just having beginner shoes. But once people get a little experience, they need to compare. And, and, and I believe they should. So my question to people who think about that is, can you stock enough shoes to be that go-to point? And I was just in you know, the new front uh, in Salt Lake City a couple of weeks ago, the the South Main one. And yeah, I think they had 28 models of shoes and they probably had a deep back stock and that's an excellent presentation, but it's not one that my gym can match. Um, And I wouldn't take us there just because we don't have the same volume of customers coming in, uh, you know, every day. And so we just don't get the traffic to support 28 different shoe models um, to make those sales. And so Sorry, long answer to a short question. But if you can, if you can, if you can convert the inventory, then by all means invest in it. But if you if you struggle to get to four models, it, it's a good question as to why you should even do that. So, and I think that that frames a really good thesis for this whole conversation, which is the unfortunate truth is there is no one size fits all or one model fits all for for gym retail. It's going to be different depending on the size of the retail space. It's going to be different depending on probably the the region of the of the country that the gym is in and all of that. I know that as a, a gym a gym owner or a gym developer is w- going to want to go to somebody and hear this is how you should do retail and okay, I'll just do it that way. <clears throat> That's not really the case. And and as much as I framed it at the beginning that we're going to help people avoid that trial and error, which I hope we can in this conversation, there probably is going to be a little bit of people will have to decide what is going to sp- fit their specific market, their specific retail area. Yeah, I mean, the cookie cutter approach is um, is really difficult to, to iterate in the climbing gym market because every market's different, every gym's different. You know, um, you know, you can look at your town if you're wanting to go into outdoor retail and say, there is or there isn't an outdoor store in town and are they covering the bill? And, you know, in places like Golden, um, not Golden, um, Oh, no, it is golden. It was Earth Treks, but now I think it's movement. They have a full retail store, packs tents, sleeping bags, trekking poles, hiking boots, you know, all the clothes, all the brands. It's just a retail store because there is no retail store in Golden. And I took that opportunity to make it. You know, the front in Ogden, it also has an extensive pro shop, but more lifestyle. It's more climbing based. They do have climbing pro and they have climbing clothing, but you can't buy packs tent sleeping bags or hiking boots or rainwear there, for instance. And and that's a good decision because Salt Lake has a lot of opportunities to buy those things. Um, so, you know, in my case, again, we had um, eight retail stores that sold outdoor goods when we opened the gyms in 1996. Um, and I was like, you know, they sell climbing stuff all day and we just want to cater to climbers. So let them buy their stuff there and come to me and we have a win-win and I have 
eight places saying, go climb at boulders instead of, oh, they're competing with me. And so that was part of the decision process for us not to have retail when we opened. But we developed it over time because that landscape changed. Now there are two retailers in town, or three actually, that sell outdoor goods, but one's paddle sports specific and they don't sell anything climbing related. You can get packs, tents, sleeping bags there. Um, but um, then it's REI and then it's Fontana, who both do a good job in their niche. Is there space for another outdoor store? Maybe. You know, so far next year, we'll look at that a little more strongly. But I, I don't know that we'll get into pack tents, sleeping bags. But that's that's how we're approaching it here. But, you know, your mileage may vary. You mentioned a little bit about stocking issues, back stock. I want to get to that <clears throat> in a second. But first, you, you've also said you've, you've mentioned that you were a rep, uh, are a rep for different companies. And so that, I think that gives you a, a unique perspective beyond just being a, a gym president, gym developer, in that you have visited a lot of different gyms as a rep to specifically focus on their retail methodology and their retail needs and whatnot. Um, so as you look back at your career as a rep, are there some, let's call them mistakes, maybe, I don't know if that's exactly the right term, but like mistakes that you see other gyms doing with their approach to retail? Yeah, I mean, uh, mistake is a hard thing because, you know, a mistake in an outdoor retail store means you go bankrupt. A, a mistake in a climbing gym, since it's not our major business choice, means you can maintain that mistake for a long time. As a matter of fact, you can carry goods at a loss um, as a as a member benefit, which actually gives us an advantage, meaning, you know, selling a pair of climbing shoes to a member creates a sticky membership because they've just invested 150 bucks into a performance climbing shoe, which means that they're going to use it in your space. And so you can, you know, this is the fear of outdoor retail too. It's like, well, they can sell it cheaper because they make money on the climber. And that's true. That said, I, I work, you know, my top Petzl, my top 510 accounts were gym accounts in many cases. Uh, and um, they just did a great job of selling the whole presentation and selling a lot. And they'd set aside the space for it. But the mistakes that people make, I think, is going too hard. Um, you know, the, the math on on climbing footwear, for instance, is really expensive. I mean, it's it's a high four, low five-figure spend to just get a stocking inventory of four models or six models um, to get that going. And they don't turn very quickly. So, you know, what happens is, is you end up selling size seven through 11 of everything. And then you sit on the five, sixes, 12s and 13s. And then you call the company and say, hey, I need a, a new pair of sevens or nines or whatever. And they say, sorry, we, you got a preseason those because we're sold out. And then you can't even chase it. And so that's really difficult. Um, you know, it, I worked with So Ill for a long time. Um, we sold them quite well. They had an, a Never Buy Shoes Again program that was fantastic for us. I helped them develop that. And that was where we had a stocking inventory of footwear um, that people could try on and demo, and then they would order them and they would be delivered to their door two days later. So we were kind of working on the Amazon model from the standpoint that people are used to ordering things and waiting a couple of days once they figure out what they want. And we were using an on-site try-on set to dial in the fit. And that worked awesome. We sold, you know, we sold you know, good five figures every year of footwear when we had that program. But I, that we can't invest in the inventory because 
I, I'm pretty sure we, you know, ultimately sold a full size run, but I know we sold the heck out of seven to 11 <laughs> in both men's and women's because that's just where the bell curve is. And so, um, uh, that's just footwear. Um, I, I think the mistake is uh, the other mistake that I see is making gear museums. You know, I've had especially new gyms like we're going to have portal ledges, we're going to have haul bags, we're going to have full size runs of every cam, we're going to have, we're going to have, and they just become gear museums that you dust every month because you just don't do the turns that you think you're going to do on those products and their image pieces that that you know are probably better suited for uh, online purchase at this point because it's really difficult to stock them and sell them consistently. One of the things that I have not noticed Jim's doing is having some sort of online <clears throat> retail component on their website. Meaning you, if you want to buy gear from a gym, you have to go to that gym and buy it physically in person. I mean, I know you just mentioned the, the mail order program, but what I mean is you can't go on their website and buy gear and have it shipped to them. But beyond that, you can't even, like, I would think that gyms could link to Amazon on their website or something like that. Um, if Especially if a gym has on its page, here's all the gear that you need to start climbing because most gyms have that sort of page, right? For total beginners. Here's what you need to come to the gym with. Uh, and if they don't have that link to Amazon or something, am I way off base? Are gym, uh, when I say that gyms are kind of missing an opportunity here to, to have an online purchasing component, I, I I think that's super innovative. I think that that's could be really disruptive if we, if those relationships could be made with Amazon or one of the online providers like Backcountry or AI, more of an affiliate link, is super interesting. I think that's a great idea. Um, you know, I, I, I go back to the fact that the gym should be incentivized to do that because they can make some money on it, but then they create um, create a, a sticky. A member, you know, if somebody's spending that money on climbing, it means they're going to be a member longer. They're not going to fall out of it. They're going to have a better experience. But, but we did. We went pretty far down a path working with um, Paul Fish at Mountain Gear, trying to develop a platform where my staff would recommend products that would be fulfilled by Mountain Gear. Because we get asked all the time, "What rope do you use? What shoes do you use? What pack do you use? What cams do you like?" and you know, we have no skin in the game, so our staff just tells them the truth. I like these, I like those, I like this other thing. And then people go out and buy that. And we saw that happening. And we we worked hard with Paul to try to get that to work. But then unfortunately, Mountain Gear closed. But um, it's a conversation that's still out there that could still be done. And I, I think from a gym perspective, um, it could help with memberships and also help, you know, even if it's just 10% or 20% kind of commission on a sale. Um, and then the the entity, whether it's Backcountry or AI or Amazon, as you mentioned, you know, captures that sale, and it's a good sale from the standpoint that the fit is there and that the recommendation is there, and these things won't get returned. You know, as people do, they buy three pairs of shoes and two return two. Working with a gym that they could solve that. So, uh, you know, let's throw that into the universe and have somebody develop it. Let's talk about stocking because I have had a number of different retail experiences at gyms where I will go to the retail space and it's, I'm blown away by the offering there, the amount of gear that's there. It's just a, it's a wonderful retail experience initially, but then they don't have the t-shirt in my size or more often they don't have shoes in my size. Like you said, shoes are often sold out and whatnot. 
so it's it can be the greatest retail space in the world. But if they don't have my size of T-shirt, they don't have my size of shoes or my size of harness, I'm going to come away from that experience with ultimately a negative feeling, <laughs> even though it seemed like a nice retail space at the very beginning. So what are the keys to keeping a retail space stocked? And, and what are just the keys to keeping a finger on the pulse of, of things related to stocking? Well, I think you bring up two points. So I'll go back to the kind of the deeper point. It goes back to the, oh, I'm starting a gym and it's going to have the best pro shop. And we're going to have outdoor guiding and we're going to have full yoga and Pilates and all the, you know, and all these class-based instruction things. And every everything I just mentioned is a separate business operation. It's It's actually a separate business. So people think, well, I'm climbing, so I should be a climbing guide. I'm a climbing gym, so we should have climbing guiding because to close that loop. And it's like, well, that's a whole different business thing with different insurance, different employees, different challenges, different opportunities. It's a whole different business unit. And retail is a whole different business unit too. You know, you have to have somebody in charge of keeping it stocked, keeping it merchandised, um, you know, keeping things turning and knowing when to reorder when you're out of things is really critical, especially for things like chalk and tape, the high turning items. I mean, our number one category is chalk. We sell a ton. Uh, we sell a ton of chalk um, and, you know, that's just stacking apples. It's a commodity. You know, the display works when it's full. And so you fill it every day and you sell three to five buckets of it or the big blocks every day, but they only sell if it's full. So the next day you got to fill it. It's not like you keep pulling them. It's, it's, it, you know, it's just a maintenance thing. So Inventory is a challenge, especially with supply chain issues. And again, on this preseason model that m many companies you know, need at their end, that's a question you need to ask is whether you can preseason, whether you can turn the goods you brought in and whether you can reorder because the, the footwear is kind of a nightmare from that standpoint. But belay devices, harnesses can also fall into that. And if you're out of size, medium harnesses, that's a problem. Um, and if you haven't preseasoned them, sometimes you can't get them. So those are good questions to ask as you go into this. Can I maintain this separate business unit or not? So can you explain how you approach the retail area from a um, a personnel standpoint? Are you training everybody that works at the gym to be able to slip into that retail area and make a sale? Or do you prefer to have somebody who is, say, the retail manager uh, and that's kind of their specialty? Uh, how... Uh, how does this pertain to your staffing choices? Well, for the last year and a half, we've had a retail manager and she's done a great job. Um, prior to that, I was the retail manager and it was, I called it my little junior achievement project. When I'd go into the gyms, I'd merchandise and I'd say, oh, we're almost out of tape. I better buy that. We're almost out of, you know, it, literally our, our shop is so small that visual inventory works. You know, as you get larger, you need to manage computer inventories that tell you when you're out of stock because you're not going to be able to look in every corner to see that you're out of things. But our retail space is literally two uh, four by eight slat wall panels, you know, well merchandised with all the things that I just mentioned. And I go and I look and I'm like, oh, need more truck bags. Oh, you know, need to hang a new t-shirt because the rack is empty on that t-shirt. We do keep back stock of t-shirts because we make those and I, um, let's talk about T-shirts and branded swag here in a minute. But, um, but um, you know, 
it, it takes, when I manage it, it takes like 10 minutes out of my day every day. And it's really simple and easy. And that includes reordering because I put out the three or four things of chalk and I look and I'm like, oh, I'm almost out of chalk. And I just go up and I place a chalk order that day. Next day I put the tape out and I'm like, oh, I'm almost out of tape. I better buy tape. But um, if you can't do that, um, you got to question whether you should. And as you get bigger, you know, can I spend time looking at computer inventories and setting up uh, buying assortments? That's a good question to ask. And that was one that I would often get into with new gym owners as I was a rep. Like, are you actually going to look at this as its own separate business or not? Because I don't have time to just have you bring it in and, and not do it. The other question you asked, and again, I'm sorry, I'm just giving you these kind of vomitous answers, but um, uh, there's a lot of, <laughs> you do something in 30 years, you have a lot of memories on it. It's interesting because I, I hung my hat on good clinics, um, you know, in terms of training. So I'd go into every shop in the territory and give good clinics, but it's kind of like the cobbler's kids have no shoes. I never gave a clinic in my own gym. And currently, we don't really sell anything that needs extensive clinics. And the reps do come in and clinic on harnesses and belay devices because those need clinics. But everything else is pretty much self-service or you're just answering questions about price or, um, you know, yes, I'll check the back to see if we have that size of T-shirt. Um, but otherwise, everything we have is self-service. People walk up, choose the chalk bag they want, choose the chalk, choose the carabiner and take it to the register. And it, it, very low touch at our end from that standpoint. And that's that's a decision we've made. If we sold pack tents, sleeping bags, hiking boots, we would be as trained as any other retailer and we'd put that kind of effort into it. But that's one reason why we don't sell those things. Two sales strategies that I'm curious to get your thoughts on. The idea of package package deals, meaning, hey, buy a harness and a chalk bag and chalk for this discounted price. Is that something that, that Boulders does. And secondly would be, how do you handle sales, <coughs> meaning like half off sales, holidays, ho here's a holiday special sale, everything half off or whatever, that type of thing. So package deals and sales, I'm curious to get your thoughts on those. Package deals are really wonderful. The new member package is really great. You know, having said that, we don't do that <laughs> largely because we don't do the footwear component, which is a critical part of it. Um, we could make some added sales and create more sticky members if we offered a deep discount when people signed a membership. And so I'll have to think about whether we want to do that. It's just something we haven't executed on. But I know a lot of gyms do great guns, you know, with a 20% off package on, you know, harness, chalk bag, um, belay device, carabiner, and pair of shoes. And just like you have this one-time opportunity to buy this at a discount, you may as well do it now when you sign up. It's a really good way to close it. We do have a very effective holiday sale, um, and we we just bundle gift bags, gift boxes, as it were, of collections of items in different price points, everything from $20 to, well, last year we had a pad in one, so that was like a $300 package. And we sell every package, and often we end up shipping them out. We do sell those online, you know, buy something for your climbing friends, climbing nephew, daughter, whatever. Um, and you know, here it is 35, every budget just, and we'll ship it or you can come pick it up or you can tell them it's here, you know, and those do, those do pretty well. Um, so that's, that's always fun. The other question though, about general discounts and sales, we don't because we offer gym members between a 10 and 20% discount on everything in the shop anyway. Um, that's just a member discount that we offer and we, we, in theory, would have sales if we sit on the inventory too long. We just we have a category of goods we brought in during COVID. Um, 
training recovery goods like rollers and massage balls and things like that. You know, self-care was a thing. We thought we'd try it and we just didn't sell any of it. So I'm on, I'm ready to liquidate that at 50% off just to get it out of our back room. Um, but that's really the only time I'm motivated to have a sale because again, we bring in high margin, high turning items that, um, that are self-service. And so the inventory can sit there. It doesn't, I mean, I, I don't, I think we do eight turns on tape and chalk alone and they're high margin. And that's the bulk of what we sell. The other thing that we could sell is our branded swag. Um, but we don't want to do that because we don't want to devalue our brand. So if we actually end up with off size, weird inventory of discontinued branded sweatshirts or t-shirts, we're more likely to throw that into a comp prize pile as opposed to selling at a discount because we don't want to devalue our brand or, have people buy things on the cheap. So um, sales are, are not a part of our strategy, but I, I recognize that other gyms uh, could do quite well with them. I will say, having been a youth coach in the past, package deals are, or in my experience, were wonderful for youth team kids, new kids that wanted to join the youth team, because you do a lot of times have kids that want to join the team and their parents maybe aren't climbers and so their parents will come to you the retail vendor or they'll come to to the coach and they'll say my kid wants to join the team i want to get them everything that they need to be on the team and then right there if if the gym sells shoes you can get them shoes you can get them a chalk bag chalk if they're going to be on the doing lead or or top rope you can get them a harness you can get them a bag to put it all in you can get them a water bottle i mean it can turn out to be a 200 or more dollar sale, a package deal. And so that's, a, I guess, just like a, a nickel's worth of free advice there for people listening that, in my experience, package deals for youth team team kids was, was really good. Um, I, I think they'd be great with members too, new members of any stripe, you know, so I, you know, it, it makes me rethink whether we should do that or not, you know, and then we could pick the beginner shoe and just stock that and then be sure that we'd sell a few. But um, yeah, I'll have to think about it. It's a way we could expand it. Let's talk about branded gear. Uh, I'm all ears. What sells the most at Boulders? Um, do you have it made somewhere locally to kind of coordinate with the community with a local business? Or do you have it outsourced to somewhere far away via the internet? Um, what? How do you deal with quantity of branded gear? All of that stuff. Um, our choice for branded gear, we've gone to this branded um, cadence that works really well for us. I mean, first of all, our brand is very flexible. You know, we're more like Burton than Patagonia, so to speak. Burton has a lot of fun with their, and Prana for that matter. Burton and Prana both have a lot of fun with their logo and their presentation, and they'll change their fonts and they'll mix it up and they'll twist it. And, you know, you look at their brand books and they're they're really thick, but they're not... Um, they're not limiting or prescriptive, you know, they're not like, don't do this, don't do this. Like, here's what we've done with this. Here's what we've done with that. So our brand is really flexible. And so we have our own in-house graphic artist and he comes up with crazy designs that we, we sell as limited editions. And we try to do six of those a year and we do them on seasonal appropriate platforms and colors. So by platform, I mean, it's midwinter. So we're selling a lot of sweatshirts and long sleeve shirts and heavier weight T-shirts where here in a couple of months, we'll switch to lightweight T-shirts in brighter colors and tank tops and maybe just a crew neck sweatshirt. 
and then we'll we'll move through that. But we create limited edition goods that we've actually incentivized our customers to purchase right away because we by limited they're limited. You know, maybe we do two size runs per location of the one really cool shirt, and people know they need to grab it really quick. And we we broadcast that. Hey, check out this new limited edition design. And people jump all over that. I mean, we sell through those sometimes in the day um, if they're cool designs or if the timing is right. Or you know, we've had some really great runs on that. And what that's done for us is create you know all these back years of special edition shirts, and you can kind of see who's OG in the gym by their shirts. And they come in and they're proud of, oh, this is from 1998, you know, or, or this is from, and we actually, there's a kind of a submarket of people trading these things or every once in a while people clean out their closets and go, you know, I haven't worn these in decades. I'm going to let somebody else enjoy them. And they'll broadcast. I have 20 year old boulder shirts and people are like, I'll buy them. And they get really excited about it. And so, you know, that shows the value of our brand and shows the value of the item because it can be transacted on. And we try to create those kind of memorabilia sorts of things. On the flip side, we do what we call our generic platform, which is just really a, a you know boulders climbing gym, just the logo, just really simple. And we'll do it in seasonally appropriate colors and platforms. And we'll do six of those a year too. So basically every month we're debuting a new, a new limited edition platform. And then we're supplementing with what we call the generic or um, you know standard platform that's just kind of a boring boulders climbing gym t-shirt and those also sell really well particularly if somebody can't find their spot size in a limited edition well, i'll just buy this one they get incentivized to buy a boulder shirt and they can't find their size in the limited one so they buy the general one and that works really well for us but that's been huge and to answer the other part of your question we do all that locally um, and we have our own graphic artist and we also solicit artwork from our community um, in the form of t-shirt contest where we reach out to artists say, hey, love what you did on that mural or I saw this thing. Would you design a t-shirt for us? And in that case, we sell, we'll sell them for full value, but we'll give all of the proceeds to the artist. So if we sell a sweatshirt for 50, that means they're getting 25 bucks and we're just covering our costs. Um, you know, that's not a money-making venture for us. That's a branding venture. Um, creating high quality, you know, limited edition garments that kind of go into that sort of value transaction mode when people trade them years later. Like, oh yeah, I remember when that artist did that shirt. That was so sick. I want that. I've always wanted that shirt. Can I trade you something? Can I buy that? I mean, we've literally had people, I want to buy that shirt off of you, you know, in the gym. And um, I've had people ask me for my shirts off my back, not knowing who I was. Like, that shirt is so cool. It looks so wretched. Would you sell it? Like, Oh man, um, maybe, <laughs> you know, what, how much are you going to pay me? You know, this sort of thing. You know, I got 50,000 Boulder shirts, but, uh, um, you know, I digress, but, um, you can have a lot of fun with clothing and it's super cost effective and you'll, you'll guarantee get value out of every t-shirt you make for yourself, uh, whether you give it away as a comp prize or sell it at full value because they'll live in the community forever. Oh, the other thing too, is we do themed shirts. We do a pride shirt every year. Um, we do shirts that focus on different aspects of our community. We've done them for, for, for different constituencies in our, our group to kind of target one to a specific group. Uh, we have a strong group, uh, Madison Women Climbers, for instance, and we made a woman themed shirt that was super popular. Um, and, and yeah, it's still popular. People, people want that shirt. So. I love hearing that there is this 
uh, grassroots group that sees shirts, gym shirts as collectors items. Uh, that makes that makes me feel good as somebody who has. I'll never forget a couple of years ago, somebody put, <coughs> somebody put a jacket up on eBay that was from snowbird 1989 the, the snowbird comp from 1989 the second snowbird comp ever and i remember it was i was so it was like several hundred dollars i couldn't i didn't have the money to spend on it but i just was thinking the fact that somebody put this up there and thought that this price seemed reasonable that made me happy it made me think that there are people out there that that dig old comp shirts old gym shirts just like i do it's well, I mean, you know, you can key into that as a gym, you can key into that. If your branding is good, you can definitely key into that. And it goes to other parts of the industry. I mean, I I don't know if this will make the podcast, but I mean, I have an original Patagonia jacket, pile jacket, like the very original first first years, early 70s sort of pile jacket. And when I wear that in public, I've had crazy offers for it, like five grand, you know, and a friend of mine was uh, was an executive at Patagonia. He was in a jacket at outdoor. He was at a, in an elevator at outdoor retailer, and he got on the elevator. And this guy got on. He's like, "I want to buy your jacket. I'll give you a thousand dollars." He's like, "No, man, sorry." And you know the price just kept going up, and it got to ten thousand dollars. And he's like, "I really value this jacket because I bought it in the seventies, but I, now I'm being ridiculous for saying no." And he sold the guy the jacket. You know, so it's if you create that kind of cachet with your brand, you know, unexpected things happen, and it doesn't always mean that you transact on these high dollar items, it means that the investment that people have made in your brand is such that they're willing to go to extraordinary lengths to, to own a part of it. And, you know, ideally we all as gyms connect with our community strongly enough that when we present something that's cool, that vibes with them, they'll keep it and they'll value it and they'll wear it forever. And it'll be the shirt that they never throw out and, or the shirt that eventually they're on an elevator and somebody goes, look, I'll give you 10 grand for that shirt. And they go, you know, okay. You know, and just think about the value of that to all parties. And so if we're approaching our businesses to create those sorts of items, we can't help but win whether we're part of that $10,000 transaction or not. And the undercurrent of all of this branded gear is that it's free, quote unquote, free advertising for the gym because people wear that and they go out into the community. I, I, I hate to sound like I'm just being negative towards all these gym retail areas that I've been to, but I've been to gyms before and I want to buy a t-shirt and all they have is extra small. And I'm thinking this is so obvious that you should have all the sizes stocked in this because I'm wanting to buy a shirt and go out and essentially do free promotion for your gym. And I can't because you don't have the right size here. That just seems like a real missed opportunity to me um, because this helps branded gear helps spread the word about the gym to the community. Yeah. And it's an investment they're making in your, I mean, it's, they're wearing it on their body. So other people see it, but again, you get that, you know, we all go through our drawers and closets, you know, once a year at least, and it becomes a shirt you never wear that you never want to get rid of. You're like, you grab it and you go, Oh no, not this year. And you move it over on the rack and you pull another one off. Really, like, oh, that one can go. And, you know, again, if we're creating those sorts of connections, the residuals last decades um, for the right item. And it's so cheap and easy to do. I agree with you. There's no reason for every gym not to do that. And stickers, actually. We do a lot of work with stickers. Um, we get dinged because we do charge for our stickers because we make high quality, expensive stickers. And, you know, we'll charge a buck, a buck 50 for them. You know, they, they, they cost us 30 cents. So the margin's really good, or they cost us some fraction of a buck 50 or something. But margin's great, but we want to create the value. I mean, free stickers are free and people grab handfuls and 
and do weird things with them, you know, but if they buy one, they're going to put it someplace important on their car, on their laptop, on their water bottle, and they're going to present it everywhere they go. And that's why we charge. I mean, we make good money on it, but we want them to be valued and placed properly. That's really why we charge for those. And we do make good money on them, but we've branded, um, hats, wool caps. We sold out of those in seconds. Um, I did make a mistake. I, I got a high quality hat. Um, the, the company was out of Brooklyn. They made a Merino wool baseball cap that all the, all the rap and hip hop stars wear. they do Snoop Dogg's and Jay-Z's hats and all that. And they're just too expensive, you know? And so we, uh, you know, my graphic artist, he instead made a bunch of boulders patches, bunch played with the logo, but had a bunch of fun. And then he bought a bunch of really cheap canvas hats and trucker hats and just went crazy with all these different hats. I mean, I swear to God, he might've been buying them at thrift stores. Um, and he just sewed them on by hand. And those, we sold the crap out of those. Those were insane. People love those. And we still, he still makes them and we still sell them. And I think they cost us like five bucks each, but we sell them for 20 and they just disappear the second we put them out. They helped sell the more expensive ones because, again, when we ran out of hats, like, well, they have these. Yeah, they're more expensive and they're kind of they're kind of bougie. But, um, you know, we tried. And uh, again, they're out there and we sold through them all. So all good. Yeah, this is good stuff. If people are listening and they want an actionable item from this listening experience, a gym owner, gym manager, go right <coughs> now and check your retail areas. What is stocked in terms of branded gear? If you don't have t-shirts in all the main sizes reorder right now reorder those if you're not selling free stickers hop online somewhere or or you know google your local place that can make you some stickers get those free stickers with your gym's logo on there uh yeah but don't make them free i mean you can i mean that's your choice but but i mean actually like i said if we price for them because we want people to be considered about where they put them yeah. and then we make money on them um but um uh, yeah, that's that's completely actionable. I mean, we just ordered brushes with our logo on them. I just brought in bottle openers with our logo on them. Um, you know, the bottle openers, to be candid, aren't selling well. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, they don't cost as much. I think I spent 200 bucks on on 20 bottle openers. Um, and, you know, we're not going to make hardly any money on selling them. But um, I just want people at home cracking a beer going, ah, boulders, chink, you know, yeah. so... I mean, that's one advantage of being a gym versus a retail store is you don't have to transact on the each unit and make 40%. You can choose to take lower margins for, for different motivations, whether it's, as we talked earlier, about getting climbing kids outfitted so that they can be on team or whether it's getting new members outfitted or, um, or, or whether you're just trying to get a promo item out there inexpensively, a quality one. I mean, we've, we've swallowed margin on expensive sweatshirts because we want our brand to be associated with quality. So they put on the sweatshirt like, Oh man, this is a really good sweatshirt. It just feels good. And normally, you know, hip hop sweatshirts of the same platform can be 150 bucks with just a crazy graphic on it. And the, the exact same, you know, high quality brand name. And we'll sell that shirt for, you know, 50 to 75 bucks just because we want people to buy it and we'll eat the whole margin but we want that to be the sweatshirt they wear for the rest of their lives when they're sitting in front of the TV. That's really what we're trying to accomplish there. And as, as gym owners, we can make those decisions that retailers can't. We've talked about staff. You mentioned having a retail manager. I think maybe a good place to conclude is, is 
concluding with a little bit more chat about personnel, because at the end of the day, we want this podcast to help people. We want people to get jobs. If they want to work in the climbing industry, we want to help them get the job that they want in the climbing industry. So if you are looking at an employee's resume, especially an employee that maybe wants to work in the gear section, the gear area or something like that, what are you looking for in that candidate? What what makes a good fit for somebody that could work at your gym, could maybe specialize in, in the retail? Do they have to have retail experience? Is that something that you want them to have? Um, no, but it's interesting. You bring up a whole, a whole can of worms with this. So thanks for asking the question. But, um, you know, what we need most and, you know, the way I look at our gyms is there's always more work than people. So you pick and choose the work you do that you have to do versus the work you want to do. Um, you know, and so one way to filter for that is to let people pursue their passion. So what's typically happened for us is people get really passionate about the pro shop. They get really engaged with it. They, they make it their little hobby job in the gym and they, they merchandise it. And they're like, oh, what if we had headbands or what if we had, you know, really cool little organic food, you know, or granola bars or what if I found this thing and they'll bring it to me. Can I buy that? I'm always like, sure. If you're passionate about it, I'm sure somebody else will be passionate about it, you know, on that vein. But at the same token, by hiring people who don't have retail experience, who are just passionate about it, we also um, run the risk of repeating every retail mistake ever made because people come into it with a fresh mind. I'm going to think of this my own way. And they come in and like the number one conversation we have is we have to have footwear. And I'm like, okay, we'll put together a, a beginning footwear order and let's talk about it. And so sure enough, they put it together and it's, Ten, twelve thousand dollars. I'm like, do you, you know, relative to other things, do we really want to, you know, and it's a teaching moment for me, but do we want to put twelve thousand dollars that sits on the shelf for a full year, or do you just want to make sure that um, chalk is constantly stocked? You know, um, you know, um, and I, I, I've dealt with gyms as a rat. I'm sorry, we can't buy, can't buy, you know, this hot selling item because we have so much of this other thing that's not selling. Our open to buy is dead, you know. And, you know, that's footwear can do that really quickly. It can absorb all you're open to buy. And then you can't buy anything that's turning and you until you sell the footwear. So in terms of staffing, they need to be coachable and they, you know, they have autonomy to make their own ideas. I ask them to check in with me and others before they pull the trigger. And I give a lot of autonomy. And, and then also, you know, I, I, I think this is a mistake, but we can try it. And I've been wrong about as many times as I've been right. Um, you know, so I get pleasantly surprised when people go, I think this will really sell. And then it does when I didn't think it would. And, or, you know, as long as we haven't bought $12,000 worth of shoes that sat there for a year, <laughs> you know, there's not a lot of sanction and buying two or $400 worth of stuff and seeing how it goes. Yeah. yeah. That's the, that's the advantage of the limited edition model, right? You don't necessarily yeah. have to stock hundreds of these things. You, you stock a, a, a smaller quantity and you, brand it right as limited edition and and that kind of helps it sell gives it some cachet to the people that want to <laughs> collect it maybe like you were talking about and um and then that way you don't have to have this huge back room full of boxes and boxes of t-shirts that are might sit there for a long time yeah as a matter of fact we did sell t-shirts online we had one debut every month during covid you know they were more or less covid themed we tied them to quotes from famous climbers and adventurers um so, you know, John Long and Shackleton and, you know, uh, 
uh, who else? Joe Simpson. And there was a few quotes we had on these really cool T-shirts. And they had to be ordered online. And we just watched the orders roll in. And there were people who bought every one. They were the first one to buy those shirts during COVID. And that always means a lot to me because I see them wearing them in the gym. And we were selling them to keep the gym afloat. And then I see them now. And they I know that they have 15 of these things because... That's just one way they were supporting us and they wear them every time they come to the gym. And that gives me a good feeling. And I know it gives them a good feeling too. So um, good feelings are one of the things we transact on in the gym business. So it's just another way to create that. At the very beginning of our conversation, you'd mentioned vending machines real fast here before we go. What are the vending machine items that you have found sell the best? Energy bars, cookies, chips, Gatorade, soft drinks? What? Yes, else? thank you for bringing that up. I, yeah, before I think it was before we started recording. So let me just go back and repeat that. So um, vending machines are super critical, um, I think, to any gym because people need to eat and drink when they're in the gym. And if you don't supply that, they're going to bring it and then you miss that opportunity. Um, we purchase vending machines that that um, distribute more than food and drink. Originally, we we had guidebooks in there and we had tape and we had a you know hand files and anything we could stack in there. And we found that those didn't sell as quickly as just self-service. So we pulled all that stuff out of there, just FYI. Um, but, you know, and and then we hit kind of highfalutin. We're going to sell only organic, only, you know, these premium things, only, you know, the pure athlete stuff, the, the elixirs that are going to make us stronger and thinner and more handsome and more attractive. We're, we're going to be friendly to puppies and pigs and and everything else, and it's going to cost $5 an item. And, you know, every time we put those in there, it's not that they don't sell. It's just that when I go to Costco and buy a 36 bag box of the Frito-Lays products and buy the big box of, um, you know, pretzel mix sort of things and buy the assorted Gatorade bottle collection, I buy them at like 50 cents a unit and they just burn through. You know, the kids come in and buy the Oreos and the chips and you know, I eat well and I don't like to sell crap in the gym, but the truth is, is it sells a lot better. So we, we go to Costco and we buy things for 30 to 60 cents that we sell for a buck 50 to three bucks. And it ends up being a highly profitable part of the gym. And it offsets, you know, we, we average a 40 margin through all of our things, but it offsets, you know, that sweatshirt that should be a hundred to 150 bucks that we're selling for 50 when we swallow all the margin on it, just to get it into the field. So we average a 40 margin largely because of our vending machine, our tape, and our chalk. Um, and then that allows us to be really flexible with higher ticket items that we're buying and placing for strategic reasons. Um, um, and and b- before we get off of the vending machine discussion, I do want to say the other things we don't talk ch- sell that aren't used in the gym, we do make two exceptions to that. Um, one is uh, home training devices, which are hangboards primarily, uh, all the versions of hangboards. We get a stock of those in starting in like September, October, and we sell them through into March and they sell really well. And we typically have enough backstock to carry the item, the category through the summer. And about August, September, we're running out again and we get the new influx in. So hangboards sell well through the winter. And the flip side of that is because we don't sell um, ropes and quick draws. I mean, we don't live in an area where there's sport climbing. Um, so ropes almost involve, always involve a trad lead or a top rope. So we don't get into any of that, but we have exceptional bouldering nearby. So we do sell pads and just want to give a shout out to organic. They, they tend to sell the best for us, but we also stock 
pets on black diamond and they do well too, but our organic really steers our ship on that. And we'll, we'll get in four pads at a time, two different sizes from whatever brand we get in. And we have one each in each gym. And when we sell one, we order another one um, and just keep, keep four pads in stock all summer. And there have been cases where people come in and buy four pads and we're out for a couple of weeks, but, um, but they're really handy and they sell really well. This is fantastic. I'm I'm looking down at the notes I've been jotting here. Organic pads, organic mats, hangboards, cookies, branded gear. We've I feel like we've jam-packed this with a lot of information, but it's been all really informative to me. And I I think people will get a lot out of this discussion. Well, so Brad, thanks so much for for chatting. This was a lot of fun and, and really educational for me. So much appreciated. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for the great questions. Um yeah, I, I I can talk a lot, so I, I appreciate the opportunity to to share some things. So thanks again for asking. Can you plug uh, where people can go to learn more about boulders or where they can go to just kind of follow your gyms and keep in touch with all that you're doing? Yeah, um, where Boulders Gym is our asset on uh, online, so www.bouldersgym.com. Um, and we're Boulders Gym um, on Instagram and Facebook, our two primary um, social media platforms. And yeah. That's how you can find us. Um, so great. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I hope that your notepad is full, <laughs> bursting at the margins of scribbled notes, just like mine is after this talk with Brad. Big thanks to Brad for coming onto the podcast and sharing all of that wisdom that had accumulated over the years. Be sure to check out the Boulders websites or even better, stop in for a session the next time you are anywhere near Madison, Wisconsin. On the CBJ end, be sure to follow along on all of our social media and scope out the website often because new stories and interviews and breaking news gets posted all the time. So that's all at www.climbingbusinessjournal.com. Or if you just wanna make things easiest, sign up for our Monday morning email updates. Here at the podcast, we'll be back soon for another episode with another guest. We'll see you then.